Eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. For many of us, Google, Alexa, Siri or our digital assistant of choice are now part of our daily lives. But increasingly, these virtual assistants are keeping us company pretty much all the time. They might be listening to our meetings, noting our everyday routines, and apps like Fitbit are tracking our exercise patterns. They're extremely convenient, but there's often a trade-off in relation to our data, privacy and security. Yet many of us still welcome the convenience and maybe even the apparent connection they offer, and continuing to use them has the potential for eroding our privacy and even our autonomy. Jeannie Patterson is Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics at Melbourne Law School, University of Melbourne. The centre is dedicated to the cross-disciplinary research of AI with particular focus on ethics, regulation and the law. Jeannie Patterson sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr Andy Horvath. Jeannie, if I was your taxi driver and you hopped into my cab and I asked you, what do you do? What do you say? Well, um, I'd usually start by saying I'm an academic and I am also a lawyer and I, I'm interested in protecting consumers. And because of the way the world's gone, protecting consumers means thinking about the impact of emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence, on consumers' uh, rights and interests. So what's gone wrong with technology and consumers? Well, I don't think it's so much that's gone wrong as consumers don't really know what they're getting, actually. Um, So technology has a lot of potential for improving people's lives, and I'm a technology optimist, in fact, and there's some really interesting things that technology could do in terms of including people that are currently um, marginalised or providing access and equity to people who are otherwise disadvantaged. But the problem is at the moment, access to technology is very uneven. Um, Most people don't have enough understanding about the impacts of technology in their lives or even that it's being used against them. And that's what needs to be redressed first and foremost. And then we can think about how we govern and how we distribute this useful new tool. Okay, so artificial intelligence is sort of everywhere. It's in our shopping, it's in our communications. It obviously helps us, but how does it harm us? Well, the way it harms us is actually it's not so much the AI that harms us, it's the uses to which it's put. So at the moment, most people would be aware, I think now, that their engagements with social media result in information or data being collected about them, which is then somehow compiled and turned into ads that they see. Now, that seems pretty harmless, and but the issue there is this. Increasingly, we're, our interactions with the world are being mediated through these digital profiles that are created about us. So it's, we cease to be ourselves, full, rich, interesting humans, and instead become these sort of flattened representations of an entity that's been combined and composed by an algorithm. And it's that digital identity that determines what we see on the screen, what we see on when we're watching Netflix, what we see on Facebook, what we see on Twitter. Now, 
a lot of people just go, well, don't engage with social media. But it goes deeper than that. When we're in supermarkets, the supermarkets are keeping track of what type of products we're buying and how much we're sending. And that information can be used to decide what ads are sent to us and even what products cost us. So you can see in that way, we can see we start to lose control of how we interact with the world. And also, we have no visibility about who's being left out and who's being disadvantaged. So it's not just about nefarious activities, it's about transparency. That's a really good point because I think if we watch a lot of um, media about technology, we sort of might say, oh, there's bad actors, hackers, governments, aggressive governments trying to infiltrate and steal our information. And that that probably is true, but it's just our day-to-day interactions are resulting in us being consistently surveilled without our real understanding And then that information used to determine who we are and what we get. So there's a lack of transparency, but transparency is just the starting point. There's also a lack of accountability. We as consumers and citizens have very little say about how these technologies are used and how we have control over how they're used and what's said about us, in fact. Do you recommend limits for data usage? Is that what your group does? I think limits on data usage are a starting point. So, you know, if you look at what's happening in Europe, for example, which has the strongest data protection in the world, there's lots of controls over when data can be collected and what people need to be told about the data collection and what it can be used for. But the premise of that regime is that people choose. They decide whether they want to share their data and for how long and in what capacity. But the problem with purely relying on sort of individual rights to control access to data is this. Most people don't care at the moment. Most people are really busy and preoccupied with other things, particularly at the moment in this sort of COVID pandemic world. And the concern is that if we know anything about human decision-making is that, you know, things that are a bit abstract and the risks that are in the future get put off. People don't pay attention to them. So if we rest control for data in individuals, in individuals' decisions, we end up with the potential for a really bad outcome because individuals aren't going to exercise that control. They don't have the incentive to do it. They don't have the time to do it. Um, They don't have the foresight to do it. So we, you know, the sort of individualization of control over data, in my view, is problematic. I think we need to look at the technology and the uses that are being made of that data and focus on the regulation of that as much as on the sort of data that feeds it. Personal assistants like Alexa, Siri, M or Google Assistant are kind of labour-saving devices, but I guess if you put an ethical, political and legal lens to it, it can sort of shine up some different things. Jeannie, this morning I asked Siri, should I trust you? And she replied by saying, thank you, your trust means a lot to me. Um, And I thought that was kind of spooky. It's kind of spooky. And Siri and Alexa and all of this are really good examples of the way we have AI in our homes. And the reason why we think at the centre I work with, that's the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics, we think the focus needs to go beyond just individual rights over data. And 
these is the digital assistance AI in the home is a really good example of us because increasingly people have various labor-saving smart devices in their homes. Alexa is a good example, so Siri, but also smart TVs or fridges that know when you're running out of milk. And they seem really, really helpful. They seem useful. Um, I can say to Alexa, Alexa, play the song I want. Alexa, tell me what's the weather's like. Siri or Alexa, do you trust me? And that's amusing and helpful and perhaps you know, it doesn't seem particularly invasive to our privacy or our autonomy. But if we think about the escalation of these sorts of devices, what we're gradually doing is giving away ourselves. We're giving away ourselves to an automated process that pretends to be our friend. Now, to me, that's problematic in all sorts of ways. It's problematic in a legal sense because we don't know what we're getting back. How good are Alexa or Siri's suggestions? I don't think anybody's looked at that particularly critically, but also in terms of our interpersonal and human essence, what are we doing if our best friend is really simply an algorithm? And if I can go on here, one of the problems with AI is that it's called artificial intelligence. And we tend to go, oh, it's a human. It's kind of a human. It's evolving. It's like us. It's nothing like us. It is an algorithm that's making predictions about what you might want on the basis of what you've done in the past and what your friends do. There's nothing intuitive or imaginative or creative about that. It's an algorithm. That's kind of a formula that's being deployed by large multinational companies to extract value from us. So I think there's all sorts of issues there, both immediate and existential. I hope I've confused the algorithms by suggesting that I like riding motorcycles and that I enjoy looking at pom-pom dancing routines. Can I beat the (laughs) system? (laughs) Um, Can you beat the system? Lots of people ask this. They go, well, I know that social media is gathering information about me and I don't really want that information known. So lots of people put a false name into their social media profile or they don't tell Alexa, you know, everything about themselves. But the point about digital profiling is it's kind of not looking at what you say, it's looking at what you do. So what my name is, what my age is, where I live is one of the least important things to the collection of data to feed the AI that's in our lives. What it's really looking at is who we socialise with, how long we look at particular advertisements, how long we look at YouTube films of pom-pom dancers, or in my case, dogs running around with cats and horses, and making predictions about that sort of activity. So the only way to beat the system is not, in fact, to be on the system, because that's the only way you can prevent information being collected about you, which is then used to profile and sell products back to you and otherwise influence your day-to-day behaviour. And it doesn't really stop there either, because my interactions on Facebook are interactions with other people. So I'm also providing information about other people. So you may choose not to be on the net or on social media, but other people who know you are, you're still having information collected about you, which will inform the kinds of decisions that are made about you in all sorts of ways by algorithmic processes. And it's not just advertising. Increasingly, access to a variety of services, government services, and also uh, commercial services like insurance, credit, 
telecommunications are made on the basis of predictions about your behaviour. So there's all sorts of stories about the way that now that pricing of insurance is determined by your credit score or the friends you associate with. So you can see that our digital profiles have an impact on not just the advertisements we see, but all sorts of other interactions we have. I'm getting really spooked now. (laughs) Are we going to reach a tipping point where the machines become self-aware and I'm no longer in control of who I think I'm connecting with? I think we are, but it's not because the machines are self-aware. The machines aren't self-aware. I'll go back to that point I made earlier. The machine is just a set of algorithms. It's just a mathematical process, essentially, that is using computing power to look for correlations and patterns in large amounts of data. And that's actually the scary thing, because these correlations, these patterns, these profiles that are created about us may in fact have very little resemblance to you and the way you understand yourself and the interactions you have with your friends, but yet it becomes the basis for decisions, decisions about the type of advertising you see, decisions about the political advertising you see, decisions about your access to goods and services. Doesn't this fly in the face of democracy? Isn't democracy a well-informed society? Doesn't, isn't that yes, how it works? That's right. Democracy works best under sunshine. And now we have a lot of decisions informed by or made by processes that we don't understand. So when I think I said a little while ago, transparency is the beginning. So the first step is for people to understand the degree to which decisions and interactions are now mediated by algorithms, and then to think critically about the kinds of governance structures and controls we want to place on these processes to preserve both our human values and our democratic values. So it's not enough to know it's happening, though that's a first step. We also need to think about how we control what's happening, how we make it accountable. So how do um, we do that? Well, how do we do that? This is where I think the field of AI ethics, that the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics Studies, is really important. A lot of people, when I mention I work in the field of ethics, they go, well, that doesn't do much, does it? But here's the thing. The laws we have in society are informed by, in a broad sense, the values of the society. So we need to work out what our values are in relation to these new emerging technologies, these new algorithmic processes, in order to decide what sort of laws we need and how they should apply. And moreover, if we want to change behaviour, we need to have lots of discussions about the ethics of the behaviour, because ethics is really asking people to think what is the right thing? How should we behave? Just because we can do things doesn't mean we should. So the conversation about ethics is key to interrogating the role of algorithms in society, but also to thinking about the kinds of limits and controls we want to place on their use. As a lawyer, what sort of prosecutions have you seen in this area of AI, technology and society? There's been very little legal action in this field. 
I think it's going to come. Most of the attention in law has been focused on that first process, how the data is collected. So I mentioned earlier that most of the law regulating personal data is premised on ideas of consent, of asking individuals to consent to the use of that data. But increasingly, lawyers are saying, that's not enough. We need to think what is a fair use of the data. And moreover, think about the kinds of technologies that are being developed to make use of that data and how we want those technologies to work. Now, let's not be, you know, catastrophize here. Some of the uses of the new technologies are fantastic and could really make a change to society. So AI is currently being used and increasingly being used to monitor and predict deforestation, to identify the spread of contagious disease, to develop new treatments and diagnoses of disease. The police are using AI in ways that is problematic and discriminatory, but it's also being used to profile and identify uh, child sex offenders. So AI has potential to help us resolve a lot of the problems we're dealing with in the world today, and we want that to happen, but it can only happen if we have a degree of understanding and insight into how this technology is being used and really strong legal frameworks for that use. And I'll come back to this idea of accountability. We may remember that in the UK, because the the final year students last year couldn't sit their exams, an algorithm was used to predict their results on the basis of what had gone before. Now, the problem there was not merely the use of an algorithm to predict their results, but there was no accountability or contestability in that process. So the prediction was based on past performance of schools, which meant that a lot of state schools did badly and a lot of what are called in the UK public schools, but here we would call private schools, did well because of their past performance. And what that meant was sort of summed up a lot of the problems that we feel about AI, that there was no scope in there for the outliers, for the person who went to a previously poor performing school but had a fantastic teacher and a fantastic mind and a fantastic cohort and had the exam sat was going to do really well. There was no mechanism in that algorithmic process for understanding those sorts of anomalies in the predicted outcome, there was no accountability, there was no contestability. So if we're going to use algorithms to make important decisions, we also need to have processes for the humans that are involved who understand the context and understand where for social reasons or other political or policy reasons, we shouldn't really be relying merely on past performance or past behaviour to make important decisions about the future. What is your perspective on facial recognition? It's really pervasive now. It's really pervasive and badly understood. I think now people may be aware that facial recognition technology is used in some security contexts to identify wanted persons by some police forces and also in China in relation to the social credit system. But what 
people may not realise is that facial recognition technology is also being used increasingly to scan the faces of school children as they arrive at school instead of taking a role and in um, supermarkets and shopping centres to decide the mood of customers so that appropriate ads can be beamed at them to persuade them to buy things. Now, facial recognition technology goes beyond even the data profiling that comes from the use of social media and other internet sites because it's capturing information about you that is unique to you, your face, which can be used in all sorts of ways subsequently. And yet, currently, facial recognition technology is really inaccurate And this is one of the problems with AI, that its capacities currently, I think, are often overrated. We think it can do things it's simply not capable of, and that's dangerous because if decisions about people's threat to national security, their emotional states, their mental well-being, whether school children are attentive in their learning and engaged, Those sorts of decisions are being made on the basis of a technology that it's inherently inaccurate, if not biased, then that's really problematic for our interaction with both um, public institutions like schools and private institutions like employers. We almost need to coin a term like AI wellbeing I go further and say we need to lose the term AI. We need to say predictive technology or something that's really explains that it's a it's a technological not an emotional process and therefore underlining I think your point that we need to keep this technology at arm's length we need to keep carefully about where we deploy it think of um, facial recognition technology in schoolyards for example do we really want our children to grow up knowing that they are always watched and monitored by a technology they have no control over. I don't think so. I think that stunts their growth as humans. Jeannie, how on earth did you end up in this area? A little bird told me you were interested at first becoming a vet, but it all went on a different path. Well, actually, it started before then. My father is an electrical engineer. He worked on the Apollos Um, moon landing. He worked at a place called Honeysuckle Creek, which was one of the tracking stations that followed the moon landing. And he was also one of the first people on the street to have a computer. So of course, as the child of an engineer, I said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do something else. And the something else was I was going to be a vet because I really liked animals. I was kind of like a Gerald Durrell collecting, constantly collecting and bringing them home to study them. (laughs) <laughs> the problem was when I did work experience with a vet, I found that I could not abide the sight of blood. So what do you do if you're a kid who's studied physics, chemistry and biology and decides they don't want to pursue that area? You become a lawyer. I don't know how that happened, but there you go. Um, I've kind of managed to combine my father's interests in technology through the work I'm doing. And very soon I'll be combining my passion for animals and vet science by myself interviewing some vets who are interested in AI and animals. So how does AI and animals work? 
Well, if you think about AI, one of the things it does is it challenges how we understand ourselves. The famous Turing test for recognising general AI was can it persuade us, can it persuade us that we're dealing with a human? And while we keep changing the ballpark for how that test would work, it comes to that fundamental question, our fascination with artificial intelligence. What does it tell us about ourselves? How do our brains work in comparison to the brain that might be created with a science? What is it about being human that makes us different from a machine? Is it our empathy? Is it our creativity? Is that our selfishness? Well, all of those questions also apply to animals. Animals, as we are increasingly aware, are thinking sentient beings with their own objectives and emotions and ways of being. So when we apply AI to animals, what does that tell us about how animals interact with the world and what does it tell us also about our relationship with animals should we be using ai to you know subject and control animals or should we be using ai to understand more about how what animals need to operate in this world and one of the great things that um, melbourne zoo is doing is using ai to keep their really intelligent animals their orangutans entertained how cool is that <laughs> I'm blown away. I know. It's great. (laughs) I I think um, entertaining myself, I could probably learn something from the orangutans. (laughs) Well, All this COVID lockdown is uh, not good for us. (laughs) Indeed. But AI works best when it's used in collaboration with humans rather than to dominate or expel humans from decision-making processes. So if you think about the promise of AI in medicine, for example, the promise of AI in medicine is not that it will replace doctors, but it will help doctors do the job that they want to do better. And I think that's important to, to remember as well, that the best relationship with AI is one of collaboration rather than domination or control. And a lot of these discussions about AI ethics and the laws around AI are trying to actually work out a process we can work with those machines to improve the lives of people and animals and indeed the planet, rather than end up in some dystopian future where we've lost our innate humanity and are all sitting isolated and alone with our only interactions being with a, you know, in-home device that is pretending to be our friend. Next time we see an ad pop up during our internet sessions and we realise, oh, yes, I have been looking at one too many crochet sites or one too many dual-clutch transmission motorcycle sites or one too many pom-pom fitness dance classes, what would you like us to think about? I'd like you to think about what happens when that same process of shooting ads back to you based on what you looked at previously, I'd like you to think about what that means for our political and democratic processes when the ads that are being shot back to you are news reports or media reports or conspiracy theories or political views based on something you looked at in the past. That's the challenge to democracy and to ourselves. Professor Jeannie Patterson, thank you. Andy, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you to Jeannie Patterson, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics at Melbourne Law School, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr Andy Horvath. 
The Eavesdrop on Experts, stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on June 16, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.